From Toronto, Canada, this is Cannabis Law in Canada, a podcast dedicated to exploring legal issues in the Canadian cannabis industry. Hello, I'm Russell Bennett. I'm a cannabis lawyer with the law firm Cannabis Law Barristers and Solicitors, which I founded on 420 2018 to protect and help entrepreneurs and small to medium-sized businesses grow in the cannabis industry. I'm also the co-author with Professor Emeritus Alan Young of Canada's Cannabis Act, which is the country's first and only annotated version of the federal law, along with some helpful commentary. I created this podcast as a way to talk to some really incredible people in the cannabis industry to learn more and to share the knowledge with my listeners. I started out as a lawyer and a documentary filmmaker, and with this podcast, I'm coming back to my roots of a long-form interview. I would like to acknowledge that while I am a Canadian citizen, the land I am sitting and recording on is the traditional territory of many other nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabeg, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples. In this episode number five, I talked to Tamar Friedman, who is a lawyer living in Toronto, Canada, who practices in the areas of cannabis defense, police and state accountability, and civil litigation. This year, She also joined me in researching, writing, and editing the third edition of my book as our research editor. Yay, Tamar, and thank you. She focuses on charter litigation, public interest litigation, human rights law, and regulatory defense. Tamar was called to the bar in Ontario in 2016, and she practiced as a civil litigator on behalf of the province of Ontario from 2016 to 2018, where she specialized in human rights law, Ontario Provincial Police Defense, personal injury, and corporate commercial litigation. Since 2018, Tamar has assisted self-represented litigants through her Access to Justice Law practice, which you can find at her website, lawcoaching.ca. Hi, Tamar Friedman. Hi. How are you? I'm all right. How are you, Russell? I'm good. I'm very good. I'm very excited to uh, to talk to you today. Are you? You're not in Toronto, are you? You're where are you? No, I'm. Uh, I'm calling from Yellowknife. I am six Yellowknife. days in self isolation. <laughs> you're in. You're in self isolation. How how many days? Uh, six out of fourteen. Nice. Wow. So, what's Yellowknife like today? Uh, Yellowknife is sunny. Not a cloud in the sky. The back bay is still frozen solid. Occasionally you see a float plane take off or people skiing or ski doing. Um, we're we're recording on May 6th today. This is May. This is spring in Toronto. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this so. is spring in Yellowknife. <laughs> <laughs> still able to ski. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and why are you in Yellowknife? Uh, my mom is out here. Uh, and she's not able to travel to Toronto to visit the family. So I got an exemption from the government of the Northwest Territories to come visit her. Uh, And I'm also always thinking about, you know, will I expand my practice to the territories and get licensed here? So I I try to meet with some some lawyers and people in town to figure out if that's a move I want to make. Nice. 
And uh, tell me about becoming a lawyer. Like, uh, how did you decide this was the, the thing you wanted to do the most with your life? I'm not sure it is, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> um, you know, if, if I were talking to myself uh, 15 years ago, I probably would have encouraged young Tamar to think about this decision a little more. Uh, I was a really talkative kid. I liked big words. I was probably more assertive than 10 year olds usually are. So I had a lot of adults in my life telling me you should be a lawyer, which please adults public service announcement, please stop telling argumentative people, especially children to become lawyers because <laughs> working with argumentative people is what makes lawyering terrible. Um, it really does. <laughs> we it should does. we should channel all of the like dispute resolving children into law, not the argumentative ones. Uh, wouldn't that be an amazing switch for the profession to be peacemakers instead of argument makers? Yeah, like problem solvers. Yeah, <sighs> I think you just solved the entire problem of uh, the legal the legal industry in, uh, in North America. <laughs> It'll be my, my campaign going forward. Anyway, so a lot of adults told me, Tamara, you should be a lawyer. You'd make a great lawyer. They also told me I should be a politician, which thankfully I, mm. I grew out of that uh, career goal uh, as soon as I spent any time in Ottawa. Oh, yes. Um, but Why? I, what, happened, what happened in Ottawa? Nothing, no, nothing scandalous. It's just the kind of people <laughs> that, that uh, politics attracts was not the kind of people that I enjoyed spending time with like I, I i feel i was disillusioned um at a tender age of 17 <laughs> oh so did, so you you thought you wanted to be a politician when you yeah. were in your teens yeah like what kind of a like what level of government were you what were you thinking about uh i think i probably thought about being a member of parliament um i i'm not yeah, I think that's probably true. Because I, when I got to the University of Ottawa, which I went to partly because I was able to study in French and partly because, uh, you know, center of power and I wanted government experience, I did an internship with an MP. Uh, and that part was fine, but I also got into student government. And everybody in student government, when you're studying political science, wants to be a politician right. or, or like a, what are they called? Um, like part of the administration of politics, you know, like a party, like a leader in the party, even if they're not a politician. Right, right. Anyway, yeah, I met some people. I, I just, I didn't think they were particularly ethical. Like I remember when the robocall scandal was happening, there were several students that I thought, yeah, I wouldn't put it past them. Not that I think they were responsible, right. but just that kind of tactic. I was like, yeah, I could a thousand percent even doing that. Doesn't, um, wouldn't that mean though that you'd be a better politician than most? <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm not I, encouraging I'm you to be a politician. I'm not, I'm, I'm not, but, <laughs> but I'm just, uh, I'm just saying by, by your logic of, you know, hanging out with not so great characters dis dissuaded you from being a politician when you went into it with the intention, obviously, of making the country a better place. You're going to be an MP, right? So, I don't know if you if you take things like House of Cards to be true, I think mm -hmm. even if you have good intentions, sometimes your tactics have to be unethical to achieve to be effective. 
And mm. I, I'm not ready to make those kinds of Machiavellian decisions. Um, nice. Also, I, <laughs> I just, I don't think the lifestyle of being a politician is what I'm interested in. Like I enjoy free time um, and I enjoy time with friends and family. And I like to be outspoken and not tactful in my personal life. So yeah, nice. not, yeah. not my career. <laughs> <laughs> right. Fair enough. Fair enough. So you, but you decided you're going to go to law school. How did you, how you were doing your undergrad in Ottawa or where were you, in, were you doing your undergrad? Yeah, I did my undergrad at the university of Ottawa. I, I graduated with a degree in political science and I was two credits short of a, of a degree also in economics. Right. Um, but I decided in my third year that economics was kind of nonsense. <laughs> um, <laughs> <and then> I, <laughs> really? Okay. Yeah. I think the, the fundamental, I, I'm not the first person to think this, but the fundamental premise of, of economics as like a social science is that people are rational actors. And I'm like, have you met people? <laughs> um, so. <laughs> right. <laughs> not very uh, rational. No, but my decision to drop economics as a major was a little bit more um, self-interested in that. I didn't think that I could maintain the GPA that I had if I had to take econometrics and uh, I think like microeconomics three. Um, mm -hmm. So I dropped it as a major to preserve my GPA because I knew that I wanted to apply to law school. The first time you I applied did. to law school, I didn't get in. Right. Um, so I did a master's in international relations theory at McMaster, which was my favorite academic experience of all time, because Why? we would just read hundreds of pages about international relations theory and like security theory and uh, and like what is power? Is it your military prowess? Is it your economic prowess? Um, what makes a state successful? Is it like how how safe the border is, or is it the human uh, rights that are preserved within the state? It was fascinating. I loved it. Um, and then you just go to class and you would talk about it with 13 other nerds. Mm -hmm. um, and no one ever made any sort of like groundbreaking conclusions, but it was just really interesting to explore. Um, but I, I, I still wanted to go to law school. The, the master's was kind of just a way to get my grades up even more. Right. Um, and then I applied again while I was doing a year off after my master's degree. I spent that year traveling, working in summer camps in Germany and being a ski instructor in Switzerland and working oh. as an English teacher in Taiwan. It was, it was really great. And had a lot of fantastic experiences. It was awesome. I, I loved it. I have a EU citizenship, so it, it made it quite um, simple for me to be able to take these like sort of seasonal jobs in Europe. Right. Um, anyway, so then I started law school and kind of halfway through that, I had an existential crisis because I realized that I had no idea what being a lawyer meant before in a law school. Right. And um, I realized that I loved working with kids and why was I being a lawyer? Uh, and then I decided that the compromise would be to focus on sort of child protection law which if you like kids is a really hard area of law because um, you see a lot of abuse and it's, it's very sad. And I realized that I couldn't practice as a child protection lawyer because it's, it's a career constantly in crisis. Your, your clients are in, in crisis. The turnaround for court is like five days sometimes. Yeah. Um, 
so <laughs> to make a, a long story a little shorter, I ended up at the provincial crowns office where they do, where they handle civil litigation on behalf of the province. Um, and that was a really good training ground. I, I worked with a lot of interesting people. I got to learn a lot of things. I moved into a policy role at the child welfare secretariat after that for about six months, um, which I was really excited about because uh, I wanted to improve improve situations for children in care and, and children who may be in need of protection. But the project that I came in on once the election happened in the summer of 2018 kind of lost its political backing. Um, so seeing the writing on the wall, I decided that I was going to start my own law practice and, uh, and I, quit my, <laughs> I quit my policy job and I've been working for myself uh, ever since. And this, this is under your lawcoaching.ca site? Yeah, that's my law practice. Um, it's, I've been doing it since 2018. I offer legal coaching um, or law coaching for self-represented litigants. Um, so I love your slogan. It's, uh, so if you go to lawcoaching.ca, you can see your, the, the slogan that comes up right up is you don't need to go it alone. Mm -hmm. Now, what, why, why that slogan? Tell me a bit about the, how you formed this idea of coaching instead of representing? Um, I remember it so vividly. While I was in my policy job, I was reading an article about family law reform. And, uh, and one of the things that they were recommending was an expansion of law coaching and family law. Uh, it's definitely a more common um, service in the family law area uh, because people who can't the percentage of people who are up unrepresented in family law is huge. It's a little bit lower in civil cases, but mm -hmm. their rate of success is, you know, drastically lower than someone who is represented. Right. And, uh, and if I had to represent a lawyer, I couldn't afford it. So law coaching is kind of a middle ground where a lawyer is delivering services on a limited scope retainer Sometimes it's unbundled legal services like uh, drafting a legal document or mm -hmm. uh, maybe appearing as an agent on a, a settlement conference. Um, but it also can just be, you know, providing not summary, but actual legal advice to a person about their specific file behind the scenes um, and, and just coaching them to be able to do it by themselves. And personally, I thought that would be a really good um, crossroads of, of my skills because I like working with people. I like teaching. Uh, I like being self-employed. <laughs> right. So how's I, it been I, going? I, so you started in 2018. What, how's it been the last three years? <clears throat> uh, the, the times where I'm actually delivering law coaching, I felt really good about um, in one of my early experiences. I went with someone. Um, she was arguing a motion and I wasn't appearing on her behalf and I wasn't even appearing as agent, but I was there with her at council table. And when it came time for her to deliver her submissions, the judge allowed us um, 15 minutes to uh, go into a breakout room so that I could help her understand the issues that the judge was asking for submissions on. And mm -hmm. I had seen, I had seen what she was, how she was able to perform before 
she had my advice and how she was able to perform after. And I just, that, that for, that for me, I was like sold at that point because I, I could really see just what 10 minutes of advice um, was able to accomplish for her. Right. Um, I haven't spent a lot of time like actively uh, advertising. So, um, you know, I'm not growing at a, at a very fast pace, but um, you know, I feel good about the clients that I'm able to help and I'm, I'm always happy to help more people. Do you think that more lawyers should be doing this? I mean, is this, is this a trend that you see? Uh, I mean, do you, do you know other people that are present, you know, uh, coaching people instead of representing them? And is this, is, is this a necessary trend because of so many self-represented litigants? This is definitely a necessary trend to improve access to justice. And I'm not alone in, in delivering these kinds of services. Um, if you go to the Law Society portal for Ontario, you can see who is delivering unbundled legal services. And then I'm also part of a group called the Self-Rep Navigators. And we're all lawyers, family and civil, who deliver law coaching and unbundled legal services. And then there's also um, the National Self-Rep Litigants Project has a directory of people who offer unbundled and law coaching. So we're there if people for us, which a lot of people don't know. Excellent. Um, and how, so let's, let's cross over a bit into cannabis law. I mean, how did you come uh, into contact with cannabis law of all, because your, your background to, uh, for child protection, family, helping people uh, through coaching in litigation and, and, and other matters. This, uh, did this just naturally develop into cannabis law or where, what was your path there? <laughs> My path came through, um, I practice an association with uh, a law firm called Charney Law mm -hmm. and they, they do protest defense and police accountability law. And uh, one of our, we, we got a client who asked to hire us because uh, he had been charged or maybe his employees had been charged under the Cannabis Control Act. Um, is that true? No, I think actually he first approached us about a landlord-tenant issue because his landlord was attempting to evict him through the, through the landlord-tenant board, even though it was a commercial tenancy, um, because the landlord had been charged under the Cannabis Control Act because he was mm. running a, a cannabis store without a license. Right. Um, and and I, I practice in mid-law, and I do a lot of landlord-tenant board stuff for my practice. Um, that's a, a really, I think, productive area for law coaching because people can represent themselves with just a little bit of advice. Uh, anyway, so so he came to us for that, and uh, I was able to help him get that um, eviction application dismissed. And uh, and then he came to us with you know his future issues surrounding the unlicensed cannabis store. Um, and then uh, word sort of started to spread. We had some clients out from Six Nations. Um, who had been raided on by Six Nations police. And there was, I think, some very significant abuse that had happened. Um, one of our clients' nose was, was fractured. Oh. Um, and they were charged under during the, the raid. Yeah, during the raid. It was, oh, the pictures were, were shocking. Um, 
and this was, sorry, this is a raid of a cannabis cultivation facility or cannabis, what was it? What it, was it a raid of? It was a cannabis store. Um, okay. They really felt uh, strongly that, that they were delivering like medical cannabis to their community. Right. Um, and, and they were following traditional teachings and um, there was some development. I don't think it's even resolved yet, but Six Nations was trying to um, create their own sort of cannabis regulations, but it got, uh, maybe filibusters isn't the right word, but it, it got the legs kind of taken out from under it through um, what I perceive as some corrupt, <laughs> uh, some corrupt choices. So uh, the policies were never finalized. And in the meantime, Six Nations police were raiding uh, anybody selling cannabis without a license, which they couldn't get because there was no, there was no body to get a license from. Uh, it's a huge mess. And uh, I get, the one point I, I, I feel most strongly about um, is that because uh, indigenous or like because First Nations reserves are governed federally, anybody who's charged um, for selling cannabis without a license has to be charged under the Cannabis Act. And the ma maximum sentence for that is 14 years in jail. Whereas if you are not on reserve and you get charged under in Ontario, for example, the Cannabis Control Act, the maximum sentence is, I think, one or two years in jail. Two years. So, yeah. Two years. Right. Yeah, it's, it's, that's not right. No, no, the discrepancy is, is uh, huge, huge. And for the same offense. Mm -hmm. And, and there is no territorial uh, or like, there, there's no independent kind of the same as provincial laws for people living on reserves. So that's. No, I think. I think there's some uh, recognition that they should be able to, to self-govern in this area. Um, but if you're, I can't speak for reserves generally, just what I, I have observed about six nations. Um, right. You know, if, if that process is somehow stalled by bad actors, you have no recourse. Mm -hmm. Um. Can, can we go back to just the beginning of, of this part? I want to I wanna just understand Charney Law and what services uh, Charney Law provides. You, you had, you had a, in, a, in a nutshell, it was like police. Uh, can, you, can you say it again? How did, you, how did you say it? It's police accountability and um, protest defense are the, I would say, like flagship services that we offer. Can you, um, can you explain what? what that means for people that yeah. don't know that the, area the, of law? The protest defense really got started um, in the G20 protests a couple years back. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the founding partner, Davin Charney, um, participated in those G20 protests and he's been falsely arrested uh, a few times. And so this, this area of law for him is very personal. Um, mm -hmm. He basically became a lawyer. Unlike me, he became a lawyer just so that he could sue police. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like he's got a he's got a chip in his shoulder. <laughs> um, but it's great because you know when a, a client tells him, you know, you don't know what it's like to be strip strip searched, the indignity of it, he can say, "Well, yes, I do. I do mm -hmm. know." 
Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, so so protest defense is, uh, you know, if you're arrested for atten- attending a protest or if you're unlawfully searched for attending a protest, um, you can sue the, the police or the public official that uh, that may have breached your charter rights. Um, and uh, kind of more generally, like that kind of involves public law. So if there's a law uh, or a bylaw that you think um, violates your charter rights, it's something that would be able to help you challenge. Um, and then the protest defense. Oh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I, before we go to protest defense, I mean, I, I just, is it, it sounds like an impossible challenge to sue the police and to be successful. Is that, is that, uh, I mean, I, I can't imagine what that's like. Is it, is it, is it a difficult area of law? Is it, um, is it, do you find any success for your clients? Uh, yeah, we do find success. It, they don't make it easy. Um, there's a huge power imbalance in terms of just who they are. The, the Police Services Act gives them certain protection. And then also uh, in terms of resources, uh, you know, Toronto police have a billion dollar plus budget. Um, Charney Law does not have a billion dollar budget. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially the person who is suing the police, uh, who is already experienced the harm of being falsely arrested and the reputational damage and maybe they can't um, get a new job because they have uh, a charge in their in their police records Uh, or if you google their name it shows that they were arrested for something that they were ultimately acquitted or the charges were dropped Um, so so it can be in terms of like funding litigation against the police it can be very very challenging Um, we have found that some Police services are are willing to settle before a trial. Not all of them, and um, and it, it's tough. I think it's financially it's very tough, but it is legally uh, there is a, a path to being successful when you sue the police. You know, if if they uh, were negligent in their investigation and they didn't have reasonable and probable grounds to arrest you, um, and then the charges, the legal term is resolved in your favor. So if they were um, char- uh, charged and then the charges were stayed or withdrawn or they were acquitted, then they might have a, an ability to sue the police for the damages. But the, the damages, I will warn people, is, is not very high. You know, unless, mm-hmm. you, unless you missed a lot of time from work or you lost your job and then couldn't find a new job and you have those sort of lost wages, the, the quantum or the value that courts... Uh, put on police abuse is shockingly low. Like you will get more money. Um, I think if you were in a, in a motor vehicle accident than if you were assaulted by the police, I, I don't mm. know why it's like that. Sounds like a, a sad state of affairs. That's the case. Is that, is that the judiciary protecting the, the police or what is that? You know what? I don't know where it started. Um, I, I don't know where it started. You, you'll see, for example, like if someone was falsely arrested, a certain amount of the damages they'll attribute to how long you were held in custody. Um, and so you might get, I don't know, $7,000 if you were held in custody for four hours. And, and being unlawfully arrested means 
a false arrest means that they held you without lawful grounds and without mm-hmm. judicial authorization. That's really significant. That's an overreach of state authority. Um, but the, the, the value of those damages have been really low for a long time. Only in the last couple of years, the Supreme Court has said that, um, that courts have routinely undervalued these kinds of damages. So in the case of Kasoyan, uh, maybe I'm getting distracted here, but in the, in the Kasoyan case, they awarded $20,000 for someone who was um, unlawfully detained for about half an hour because there was recognition that, you know, police shouldn't be getting away with these kinds of um, excessive use of their authority. And, uh, and the courts have been, have been valuing the damages too low. So I'm hoping that the, the numbers will start to creep back up. Do you, do you, have you seen any crossover between Cannabis Control Act offenses or Cannabis Act offenses and, and police uh, you know, false arrests or wrongful arrests? Uh, nothing that we've been able to take to court quite yet um, because the Cannabis Control Act is so new. Um, I don't think I haven't had anything go to trial yet. Right. Uh, but I do see overlap. Um I can only talk about my experience in Ontario because this is where I'm licensed, but I see, um, I see some issues with the practices that have been happening here by the, in Toronto, it's the cannabis enforcement unit in Ontario. It might be like in other parts of Ontario, it might be a, a bylaw officer, provincial offense enforcement officer, or even the police where um, they go into, I'm going to talk about, uh, like cannabis stores. I don't like to use mm-hmm. the word dispensary. Uh, right. Cannabis stores um, that are unlicensed. They'll raid a store knowing full well um, that they're going to charge somebody or several people. Uh, and then they don't caution anybody. And the the charter says that if you're detained, um, then you are entitled to know the reason for that detention. And, uh, and you also need to be cautioned. You need to be told your right to counsel. You need to be told why you're being arrested and you fundamentally, you need to understand the, the jeopardy that you're in. Uh, and I think that um, enforcement officers really have not twigged to this yet. They think it's a provincial offense. Um, we're doing an inspection. They constantly say they're doing an inspection, but it's mm-hmm. very clear they're doing an investigation. They mm-hmm. come in, uh, every single case that I've seen in Toronto, they have come in with the Toronto police there because the Toronto police are there to seize the cannabis and the money. Uh, right. And that's clear in their notes from the outset. There's someone assigned to seize it. Um, and, and sometimes they've had these stores under surveillance for months. You know, they'll come by every once in a while. They'll see, yes, the store is open. I see customers. Um, I also see kind of uh, suspicious things. Uh, Sometimes the stores will have their own uh, like internal surveillance footage or not footage, like cameras for Mm -hmm. safety. And, uh, and when the enforcement officers come in, they, they block it. Like they'll hold paper up to the cameras Mm -hmm. so that what they're doing is not um, recorded. And I find that strange and um, abusive uh, and we we will be trying to make those arguments in in court when we're able to have a trial or pretrial applications in the future. I, I had a, a very similar case last year. 
very similar. There was a store in Toronto. It was surveyed for months. It was raided. They got they got a, a warrant to go in, um, and they turned they because they had surveyed it and they had been in there and made undercover purchases. They turned right away turned off the camera. They knew where the camera was, or the um, the machine that controlled the cameras, and they turned it off and then proceeded to conduct the arrests and interrogation without offering right to counsel. And I, I just couldn't believe it. I mean, it, it's, to what benefit do you think, I mean, it, this is, the, this is the, uh, the municipal licensing standards in Toronto. Those officers, they're very experienced folks. Mm-hmm. They, they know what they're doing. And it, it just doesn't under, I don't understand why they'd be so obviously breaching the charter in their procedures. The, I'm glad to hear that they at least got a search warrant in your case, because I have not seen a single search warrant in any of the raids. Really? Not oh a my. single one. And wow. uh, I don't know why. I don't know why. They obviously are aware of these places for a long time, mm-hmm. and uh, and they just aren't getting judicial authorization. I don't know why. Um, the other very troubling trend that I have observed is that they're charging employees um, but they're not charging the store owner. Yes. And the huge problem that that makes is the employees cannot argue in court that their Section 8 right to privacy was violated by an unlawful search because they don't own the premise. Mm-hmm. Um, if they had charged the store owner, the store owner could probably get everything seized, kicked out of court because the search was unlawful. But it's the store owner who has the right to privacy in the store and not the employees. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I find that so unethical. Um, even in the cases where the store owner has shown up and said, charge me, don't charge my employees. They know full well who they are. The enforcement officers don't charge him. I don't know. Right. At this point, it seems deliberate. Do you, do you think that with the proliferation of all the licensed stores now, uh, we're going to see this area of law diminishing, decreasing? I mean, are there, 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 are there there's not going to be unlicensed cannabis stores forever, do you think? Or, or maybe I'm wrong. Or will there be? So I'm, I'm quite a newcomer to this uh, industry. Uh, and I, all I can say is that they're making it so hard for unlicensed stores to stay in business. I would say like at the beginning of Ontario licensing, it was hugely problematic and I think ripe with cronyism um, that the, that the companies who were getting a license to sell were uh, connected in some way to law enforcement or provincial um, government people. Who are you, who are you thinking of? And you, you want to, Tell I'm thinking of like examples. Fantino, for example. <laughs> so Julian Fantino, he, he was the chief of police in London, Ontario, and then was the chief of police in Toronto, as I recall. And then wasn't he, didn't he become um, a member of parliament? I don't remember. I would have to Google that. Canada Land was has that? a great podcast, by the way, about police and about Fantino. If anybody mm. wants to check them out. Hashtag not sponsored. <laughs> but he, That's great. I will check that out. What I remember about Fantino, and I can fact check uh, in a few minutes, is that he was just like staunchly opposed to cannabis until he could make money from it. 
And then all of a sudden he was like the CEO of a giant cannabis company that got licensed in the, in the, the lottery by Ontario. The other right. thing I'm about- looking, I'm, oh, oh, I'm looking at his Wikipedia right now. So he, mm-hmm. he was, uh, he was, he was the minister of uh, veteran affairs, national right. defense. Yeah. And he um, kind of got demoted. That's right. And, um, and then he joined, what was the company called? Um, was it Alicia? Alifia, that's right. So he sat on the board of Alifia. Interesting, interesting turnaround. And you know, to his credit, I mean, it, it. On one hand, it, it does smack of, um, as you said, uh, hypocrisy that a chief of police who has been responsible for who knows how many arrests and incarcerations for cannabis offenses now sits on the board and benefits from cannabis sales of a, of a, of a major corporation. Um, on the other hand, it, it is an interesting switch uh, psychologically or mentally for a man who was so vehemently opposed to cannabis to become a promoter. And, uh, and, he, and for medical purposes, I think is, is what yeah. he was really excited about, which is why he, he, uh, joined Alifia, which apparently was supposed to be helping the medical patients. But, I take um, a more cynical view. I, I think obviously like there was evidence of the benefits of cannabis long before he switched sides. Um, and the fact that he was able to change his mind, but didn't do so earlier to me just signals that he was like willfully blind to um, the lack of, of harm that cannabis presents while he was putting people in jail for it. And, and I'll add to that, I agree with you. And I, and I add to that, that the people that he incarcerated and or just charged or had charged under his, his leadership uh, should be offered pardons, expungements, and uh, you know, instantly re- uh, offered reparations for their, mm-hmm. for their uh, troubles. Because I have a very strong view on, on what should be done with people who have, have suffered under the the, uh, the drug laws and the drug war, um, but what what's your view on on it? And you know what can be done to help people that have uh, suffered charges and criminal records from uh, cannabis crimes? Well, I think there needs to be recognition recognition um, by public officials in Canada that the people who were put in jail um, were overrepresented. Is that the right verb? Were not predominantly. <laughs> Help me phrase this. There was an overrepresentation of uh, Black and Indigenous and people of color who were charged and um, incarcerated for cannabis-related offenses, even though. Uh, and there's there's a lot of uh, th- this was true for the states as well. There's a lot of literature about this, even though the use of cannabis is not like significantly higher among different racial groups in Canada. Uh, So it's not like for any naysayers out there, it's not like um, an indigenous or a black person are more likely to use cannabis than a, than a white person. It's just, they're more likely to be criminalized for that. Um, Mm -hmm. So, so in this time of, of black lives matter and, and kind of 
reckoning, racial justice reckoning, like this has to be on the agenda. Uh, anybody who is still in jail for cannabis related offenses should be let out. Uh, and anybody who was ever charged um, and especially convicted, those convictions should be uh, pardoned and all of those records should be expunged. Do you, do you know what the process is for uh, pardons and expungement? Are you, are you uh, doing any of those things? No, not no? yet. No. Because I, I talk about it too, and I'm I, I'm I'm going to find out more about it. And there's there are services being offered already. I know that the the, the government was very proud of its efforts to not offer a fee for a pardon uh, it for just possession, be automatic. but it like, should be automatic. Yeah, people are busy, and, and and it's hard to navigate these processes as much as governments think they're making it accessible. It takes time. Look how hard it is just to get a vaccine appointment. You know, people don't have the time or energy to be navigating. Um, that like bureaucracy, it should just be automatic. And, and you have to go to the police station to where where you were charged uh, to get your records, right? And and dig them out. And so that that's uh, I, I don't know if that fee is also covered by the government. I don't think it is. Fee time, the trauma of having to go back to you know, there's a lot of people who don't want anything to do with the police. They don't have to. Um, if they don't oh. have to, and I, I don't, uh, I don't fault them for that at all. Yeah, and going back to your your comments about damages being so low awarded by the courts for uh, for wrongful arrest, uh, um, is there any component in any cases coming up that 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 address the psychological damage? Uh, yes. There is a, when you get general damages um, for, for like negligent investigation, for example, uh, there is some recognition that there's some psychological harm. Uh, it, there's not a lot of value put on that unless you have like a, a, a diagnosis of PTSD, um, which I, I, I don't think that courts are um, skeptical if someone says that they were falsely arrested and, and, receive PTSD from that. Like I think courts are, courts are um, able to recognize that that's a very traumatic experience. Um, so, you know, if you're, if you're marshalling your evidence for, for a trial of this kind, I, I would recommend um, getting some, some evidence from a psychiatrist, but also, you know, therapy can help. Um, there's a, there's a great doctor in Toronto who, um, helps people. Uh, I'm not going to say her name actually. So <laughs> never mind. <Okay. laughs> I, I know she's already busy. I don't want to send her to many more people. <laughs> <laughs> you just edit that part out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, okay. So let's talk about uh, your, your and my experience together in terms of uh, the cannabis act and the book that uh, that I've been writing. So uh, so for people that are listening, I invited Tamar to come and join me in editing uh, the third edition of Canada's Cannabis Act, Annotation and Commentary. And uh, it was because we had worked together on a, on a file. I learned about uh, how intelligent, articulate, well-written Tamar is. And, and I, I, so I'm talking, talking to everybody listening, but I, I 
I wanted I want everybody to know that uh, working with you on the book was uh, an excellent experience for me because it's uh, it's a really huge burden to every year come out with a new version of this thing. And this one was a doozy. Um, so Tamar, you know, what was your experience of this thing? And uh, maybe g- just give me some feedback on what it was like from your perspective. You could be totally honest too. If, we, if you never <laughs> want to do it again, I, I don't blame you. So <laughs> what, what was your experience on it? You know, it's a- I'm very happy to do it again. Um, I just uh, in the last year, I've, I've been getting more experience writing um, like legal text. So I'm, I'm also part of the, um, Canley has a project of developing an annotated uh, rules of civil procedure and courts of justice act to be free online for anybody. Um, so Excellent. I helped write, write them a chapter. Uh, so when you came to me asking if I would be uh, your research editor, I was excited to kind of continue this journey <laughs> of, of, uh, of writing, working on legal texts. Um, and working with you was great. I think we make a good team. Um, mm-hmm. I was worried a little bit weren't giving me enough to do. Like, I think you still took on quite a lot of the, the work yourself. Um, so, you know, next time you're, you're welcome to delegate more. Yes. If you want Excellent. To. Thank <laughs> you. I will. I totally will. <laughs> we have a nice, easy transition where you, be, you can become an author. How about that? Sure. <laughs> uh, I definitely like, oh my gosh, the, the work that you've put into this book is so apparent, even just in the chapter on the legislative history. So um, that's, that's my baby, really. I mean, I've, yeah. I've got three other babies, but I, I, I have uh, <laughs> that. That's my literally uh, my What's gift. harder parenting or writing this book? Oh, parenting. <laughs> <laughs> no, no questions asked. I mean, writing the book, you're by yourself. You, you struggle, you know, some days are better. You're writing a lot. Some days you're, you're, your eyes go cross-eyed after five minutes. But <laughs> parenting, I mean, you know, three kids, it's, uh, wow, it's so joyful and challenging. And I mean, this morning, you know, we're talking about whose turn is it to play uh, Fortnite. My five-year-old introduced Fortnite to us, thanks Thank you so much for that. And uh, yeah, it's like we have one console and, and, and the, the arguments going back and forth, I seriously feel like I, I could be on the bench for the <laughs> arguments made by my children and how to, how to resolve the conflict. But yeah, no, it, working on the book is um, it's harder because of that context. If I, it was a, if I was alone on an island, it'd be a lot easier, of course, but it's the doing that, the practice, you know, trying to, be present as a father during lockdown, you know, dishes, laundry. It's, it's a, it's a, a juggling act, crazy juggling act. Um, I think for, for me, it was a relief working with you because you have a really good understanding of uh, sentencing. And I wanted to, to go over some of your changes to the sentencing section because there, there, there was a pretty huge overhaul. Like if we're, we're talking in terms of a house. It was we we gave it a brand new face. It's got a new basement. It's got a back <laughs> deck now. I mean, it's got fully it's fully furnished. Maybe can can you um, describe to me just a, from a high level like what your thoughts are on sentencing as far as the Cannabis Act goes for judges and and how uh, how we uh, kind of attacked it in the book. Uh, well, I think 
I take a more modest view of, of the renovation. I think mostly I just kind of installed some stairs. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like a lot of the, a lot of the content is, is the same or similar. It's just been reorganized in, in a, in a way I think is easier to follow. Um, but my focus in updating this chapter was to try to figure out, you know, what's happening with sentencing now that we have the Cannabis Act, because um, if people who are charged under the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act, uh, which is how cannabis used to be rela- uh, regulated, uh, some of those people have been convicted, but their sentencing is, uh, is still to happen. Uh, and I wanted to see, uh, are they getting lesser sentences now that we have the Cannabis Act? And ostensibly, you know, society has recognized that cannabis is not such a big deal, especially like CDSA, some of the drugs on, on those schedules are like fentanyl and, and heroin, you know, is cannabis as harmful as those things? Um, and, no, and, uh, <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> I'm not a doctor, but I also don't <laughs> think it is. <laughs> you know, is someone selling fentanyl, are they as morally blameworthy as someone who's selling cannabis in plain sight? you know, in a commercial storefront without a license. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I personally don't think that they are. Um, so, so anybody who reads the chapter will discover that this is a conversation that's happening in the courts. And uh, some judges, particularly out in Newfoundland, um, they take the view that, that by passing the Cannabis Act, um, the government has said cannabis-related offenses, selling without a license, um, is a less serious offense than it used to be under the CDSA. And therefore we're not uh, bound by previous sentencing ranges and, and we can um, give it a lower sentence than this charge might've uh, gotten under the CDSA. Um, and, and that case uh, is from the Newfoundland Court of Appeal. It's called Aaron Murphy. An excellent, excellent decision. Mm-hmm. Their analysis is so thorough. He spends so much time talking about the history of cannabis regulation under the CDSA, the types of sentences that you used to be able to get and the sentences that you can get now. A very, very thorough analysis. And he concludes, yes, less serious offense. There is a dissenting judge who I think just is probably has, has some stodgy views still about, about cannabis because he, he still calls it trafficking and he um, seems to have some preconceived notions about the kinds of people <laughs> Uh, are involved in, in quote unquote, drug trafficking. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, But the flip side of of that is uh, in Ontario, we have a court of appeal decision called strong. Uh, In contrast, I think it's like a four paragraph decision where in one sentence, the court of appeals like, meh, still a serious offense. Cannabis act doesn't like very seriously change the sentences for, for cannabis related offenses. Now I disagree because under the CDSA, a person selling cannabis without a license at that time, it would have been called trafficking could have gone to jail for a maximum of, of 25 years. Whereas, um, am I right on that Russell? I'm worried now I'm, I'm misremembering. 25 years under the CDSA. Is that, uh, I think, well, uh, I know cultivation trafficking was, was life, wasn't it? I'm pretty sure it's life. I think you're Let's right. Let's take a look. I think it, it so the, the reduction life, in strong, yeah. yeah. And so the reduction in strong, they're talking about a reduction from life to 14 years and how 
how that is not significant. And I, I just, I, my eyes pop out. What? How is that not significant? That. <laughs> I don't understand. I don't understand that. I, I, obviously that judge who wrote, who, no, and no, you know, no offense personally, but has not been to jail. So <laughs> I think, I think the judge probably would not have written that if that judge had been to jail and spent I, any time in jail. I, I really can't understand it. And maybe this is a barrier actually to like, you know how you can't get licensed unless uh, you're, you have a good reputation or whatever, mm -hmm. um, or like good character. And probably if you've gone to jail, you don't qualify for that. I think right. that's an issue. I think we should have more people who have been to jail become criminal lawyers. <laughs> I agree. I agree. And, and, and it speaks to this whole uh, stigma. Become judges. Of, yeah. They, I mean, really, it seems like the judiciary is this aging, removed from society population of people who are obviously well informed about law and the principles of law, but are not informed about what's going on in society. They, so, their lived experience is so sheltered. Hmm. I, I don't know how they can you, make reasonable decisions. Right. It's sheltered. And, and when you're making over 200 grand a year, I mean, you, so you don't really have to worry about where you get your food from and who puts a roof on your, on your, in your, over your head. So you don't have to worry about those things. And then uh, they're removed from the, the real life experience of Canadians. You know, something, an example that they might wrap their heads around is like, if you're buying life insurance and your options are uh, a, a policy that will cover you for life or a policy that will cover you for 14 years. Yeah, that's significant. <laughs> <laughs> that's a material that's a great, difference. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great analogy, Tamara. I love that. I love that. <laughs> anyway, so, so then, okay, so. So then what, uh, you know, if our courts uh, following strong, or are they following Murphy? Who's winning here? I, I'm, unfortunately, I feel like strong is getting more traction. Probably. Oh. I think there's a certain, um, like, is, I'm going to pronounce this word wrong. Is it cachet? Mm -hmm. um, that Ontario Court of Appeal decisions have, uh, especially if you practice in Ontario, you're more likely to rely on a on an appellate authority from Ontario. But even outside of the country, maybe I'm too Ontario centric. But uh, I, I just think it's easier for an Ontario Court of Appeal decision to get traction than um, than a Court of Appeal decision from Newfoundland. It, even though the the quality of the analysis, I think, from Aaron Murphy is like significant to use that word again <laughs> significantly <laughs> better <laughs> four paragraphs versus several pages um so i i i you know i would encourage people to try to continue making the arguments that are made in in Arne murphy and and try to get that case adopted other in in other places and uh, hopefully we can we can distinguish strong or or just bury it in obscurity <laughs> In uh, yes, um, uh, hopefully that will be the case. I, I I think that 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 really has to it has to change. It really has to change. Uh, and and in our, in the critique section of the sentencing chapter, um, you introduced a quote from mm -hmm. Dr. Marie-Andre Bertrand, 
who was a member of the Ladane Commission back in the 70s. Mm -hmm. And uh, I detail a lot of her writing from the Ladane Commission reports um, uh, in, in the, uh, the chapter on uh, the history and the, uh, the history of the legislation um, and the history of the prohibition. But you, you decided you wanted to bring it into the, the uh, quote of hers into the sentencing chapter. So maybe, uh, I don't know if you have the, do you have the quote in front of you? I do, yeah. I, I'll Can first you talk say a, that. Talk a bit about it. Yeah, tell me about why you wanted to put that in there. Yeah, well, the Ladane Commission's report was was great, and I would I would even mention that um, Dr. Bertrand's uh, opinion was the more conservative one. Um, yes, but even she recognized that the way that cannabis was criminalized in Canada in the seventies <laughs> was was completely divorced from the reality of of the sort of lack of harm of cannabis. Um. And at that time, uh, she recommended, and this is the more conservative decision, she recommended a maximum penalty of five years for trafficking and possession for the purpose of trafficking on indictment and 18 months on summary conviction. This was in the 70s, uh, and we're still at a sentence that is so much higher for, higher than that in uh, when we're talking about the Cannabis Act, you know, federally. Mm-hmm. Um, and the trouble that I have with, with the sentence... Uh, the maximum sentence available in the Cannabis Act is, you know, if we're still essentially over-criminalizing cannabis-related uh, offenses, the fundamental problem with cannabis regulation that Dr. Bertrand identified in the 70s is that um, people are just going to disrespect the law. So the quote that she, that I put here is as follows. Cannabis is not an opiate. Its use does not induce physical dependence. The earlier opinions of society have been challenged and modified. The continued prohibition of cannabis has precipitated among many users a generalized disrespect for the law. If the laws regarding the use of cannabis are to be effective and have educative value, they must be consistent with those laws regulating the use and sale of other drugs, such as alcohol, that have a potential for harm at least as great as that of cannabis. So my takeaway from this is, you know, what are we doing here? What's, what's the point of the Cannabis Act? Um, why are we saying it's decriminalized cannabis? It hasn't. It's decriminalized certain levels of personal use. Um, but it, it still significantly criminalizes uh, selling without a license, growing without a license. And if the, the process of getting a license is not fair, is not rational, um, and protects uh, protect certain people, maybe like a, <laughs> like a cartel would, um, then, then what is the point of having a law that nobody respects? Like we haven't solved the problem. Hmm. Well said. Okay. So then, uh, what, what can be done? How, how, how are we going to fix this problem? Is it, is it, is it, can we fix the cannabis act? Can we fix the views of of judges where 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 does it where do we need to change i mean there there is a three-year review coming up in october they have to begin this review uh, i think it's like an 18-month review process of mm-hmm. the cannabis act you know what what would you say how would you say like you know change this thing i i don't necessarily know what the answer is but i can certainly help 
the reviewers identify some problems. One is who is part of the licensed community? Uh, I understand that it is mostly white guys and that's Mm -hmm. a problem. And Mm -hmm. what about the legislative framework is preventing and creating barriers to women and people of color uh, from joining this market? Mm-hmm. And I also want to know um, from the enforcement perspective, who uh, is being charged? Because I suspect that it is, again, an overrepresented group of Black, Indigenous and people of color. Uh, and that's a problem. So in Canada, at least, um, who is being charged um, for criminal offenses? I believe that data is not disaggregated by race. And uh, this is like a huge systemic problem for Canada, but for, for provincial enforcement officers, I don't know if they have that data available. Um, and if not, then it should be, and the government should be looking at that. Um, that's the, the biggest issue. And then I think that the sentencing um, provisions need to change. I think we probably don't need to put as much emphasis on deterrence and denunciation um, because of the minimal societal harm that cannabis presents. And I, I think there's a lot of talk that uh, the sentencing, like there has to be diff- harsh options because of organized crime. I, I have, I'm not an investigative journalist and I don't have any ties to organized crime. So I don't know what's true here. I don't know what percentage of of people selling or, or growing cannabis without a license are, are connected to organized crime. But I have a sense that Cannabis Act is not deterring them. I don't think that's the part that they're worried about, mm. even though there's a maximum sentence of 14 years. So if this, if these sentencing provisions are not deterring the people that you want to deter, um, but they are criminalizing people that don't deserve that level of, of um, government sanctions, then we need to retool. We need to retool the sentencing. With with New York now uh, legalizing Illinois, New Mexico, obviously the the other is seventeen states now. I think uh, as of uh, today that have legalized. Uh, do you think that? And I I don't know how much you know of of, of the New York legislation, but there's been news reports of the um, at least addressing the social inequities, the historical social inequities and the current realities through mm-hmm. government support and, and uh, segmenting funds away for those issues from the, from the taxation revenue. Is, is, there, uh, is there room for that in Canada as well? Or is that, is that just not, never going to happen? Well, Canada is making a lot of money off of cannabis now. Uh, and so are the provinces. Absolutely. I think some of that should go back to, um, to support the communities that have been disproportionately and adversely affected by cannabis criminalization for the last hundred years. How, what would that look like? Is there precedent for this? Not that I'm aware of. Uh, not in Canada that I'm aware of, but... Uh, what about, are, have there been reparations offered to Indigenous communities? No, not that I'm aware of. Indigenous Like communities for the residential are, school, the, the suffering in the residential schools? Are there any reparations been, there? 
there's been class actions. Um, and mm. so, so funds might have gone. And there's been the Truth and Reconciliation um, Inquiry. So I, I, I'm not aware of any situation where the government has unilaterally just given reparations without first being sued. But I, I could be wrong. <laughs> I'm not sure. Maybe this is a Canadian thing where, you know, it, it, as a parent, I, I look at my children in, in, uh, in such fond terms. And, I, you know, I love my kids. But when one kid does something nasty to the other kid, you, you want there to be an apology. You want there, even if there's not an apology, you want there to be an acknowledgement of harm done, right? And so we, we're, we're obviously in, in an era now where we know now, and the government has admitted, even prior to legalizing, that the drug war was a fail. They lost the drug war. And the law was enacted out of racism against Chinese Canadians. We know that. That's, that's been, it's put on the record now. We, everybody knows what the history is. And if you don't know what the history is, you have to learn what the history is. Mm-hmm. And, and so we know that the law for 95 years has been wrong, found, founded on racism, enforced incorrectly, disproportionately. And, and so at least, at the very least, we'd want the government to apologize. I mean, that's, that's the first step. And then offer money to repair and to encourage businesses uh, to grow, uh, not just in the white uh, capital community. So, I mean, I think that what you're saying really resonates and it's, uh, it's going to take maybe people like yourself, maybe a second glance at their abilities to be politicians. We're coming full circle back to the original, you're <laughs> never going to be, be a politician. Not, no. <laughs> <laughs> not going to do it. You're still not going to do it. I haven't, I haven't encouraged you yet. I'm not, no. No. I will just, I will just, uh, while, while you were um, speaking, I, I perhaps rudely Googled. <laughs> Please do. Um, yeah. I, I Googled whether, uh, whether there have been reparations in Canada. And I do see that, that Canada um, offered reparations of $2 billion to residential school survivors it's not clear to me if, yeah, it's not clear to me if that was after a class action, but um, it was after the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and the commission was was calling on victims to refuse payments from the government, and was demanding mm. that churches and government be taken to an international war crime tribunal. Um, so reparations is part of part of uh, justice in some circumstances, an apology, certainly at least recognition. At least. Uh, and, and, you know, creating tools to be able to identify these problems in the future. Like why are arrest data, why is arrest data not available, disaggregated by, by biographical information? Mm-hmm. It should like, be widely available. It should be, we're, we're in a knowledge era of life mm-hmm. right now. This, this should be widely available. It's, it should be public knowledge. You're right. Tamar, it's such a pleasure talking with you. Uh, and um, well, there's more, there's more, there's more coming. Well, I, I'd like to have another, another uh, chat with you in the future about uh, what happens down the road with the cannabis reforms, and um, and find out more about your activities for helping and coaching people. Uh, sure. Now that how that 
is continuing. So will you come back? I will come back. I especially will come back to correct any mistakes I may have made in the <laughs> podcast. I'm always so afraid. Uh, like I'll often start a sentence and then, and then redirect halfway through because I'm like, actually, am I sure of this? I get yes. teased in my family and among my friends often for like saying things with authority and then being wrong. <laughs> well, you know what? With, with with Google, we can always find out as you did instantaneously. I thought I thought mm -hmm. that was an excellent uh, excellent concluding you know uh, fact finding mission about <laughs> reparations for the residential school victims. Yeah. Um, so yes, this has been great. Thank you so much for this. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Um, anybody who was interested in some of the uh, thoughts on the cannabis sentencing should definitely check out the third edition of the book. Um, I really tried as I was updating this chapter to think about, you know, if I'm a lawyer looking at these provisions, um, the annotations for these provisions, because I have a client who's um, facing sentencing, I tried to provide some, I think we both did, we tried to provide information there to help them craft some some arguments to get a lesser sentence. And uh, and I think that the bit of history chapter is mandatory reading for everyone, practitioners, citizens, especially judges, because even I didn't really appreciate the very racist origins <laughs> of, uh, of drug and cannabis regulations. So it was very eye-opening. It, it really is eye-opening. Thank you for saying that. I agree. It, it, when, when I started researching it and reading about it, I, I was shocked. And we do have excerpts from Hansard in there so you can understand where it came from. We have excerpts from uh, Emily Murphy, who was one of the figures in, in the, the Prohibition's history, Mackenzie King, his activities. So it's a uh, it's really interesting read in terms of Canadian history, Canadian legal history, and understanding why the law, uh, why we should never have had the law, and how, and and also, I guess the um, how it was arbitrary. Uh, I know we, how it was how arbitrary. arbitrary. Yeah, yeah, and, and 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 really, it shines a light on all the drugs that are uh, criminalized by the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act, and you begin to wonder: really, do we need to have a criminal law against drugs? Because what we're talking about is people yeah. and people using these drugs. And are they really criminals? So well, we said no in terms of cannabis, I think we should say no in terms of all drugs. That, that may be next. Maybe we'll talk about that in a more detail next time. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. All right. Thanks, Tamar. Thanks, Russell. Thanks for joining us for this interview with Tamar Friedman. Please feel free to check out Tamar's website at lawcoaching.ca. This podcast was recorded in Toronto, Canada on May the 6th, 2021. The podcast engineering was done by my co-producer, Jeremy Benning at Treehouse. Thanks, Jeremy. The beautiful music was created and performed by Albert Wong. Thanks, Albert. And thanks again for listening to you. And stay tuned for the next episode of Cannabis Law in Canada.